Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be discussing a linguistic subject, some linguistic inventions. And I thought it would be a good idea to begin with some good malapropisms. I love a good malapropism. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, of course, not above coining one here and there ourselves on the show sometimes. Uh, so what's a malapropism? Before we get into our favorite examples, it's the usually unintentionally humorous misuse or distortion of a word or a phrase. So usually it's a word or a phrase that sounds like what you mean to say but is not what you mean to say. For example, uh, Jesus healing the leopards. That's yes. a great one. Yeah, they're often used to comedic effect like you, like you mentioned. And uh, so sometimes you'll see the latter, this idea of, a, of it being a phrase defined as a malaphor. Oh, okay. Kind of like a metaphor. Uh -huh. uh, it, it also, it sounds delicious, right? Though uh, we have to stress that malaphor itself is an invented word and potentially uh, a malapropism in and of itself. Oh, I can see that. Like somebody was trying to say malapropism, but they got confused and said malaphor. Right. Or, um, or they just intentionally did it. And we'll get into some mm -hmm. of the more intentional acts of this as we go. Uh, the Sopranos is a great source of very memorable uh, malapropisms. I like when uh, there's part where Christopher Moltisanti talks about creating a little dysentery in the ranks, <laughs> uh, which that one reminds me of uh, one about Scientology, the, the idea that L. Ron Hubbard had the philosophy of diuretics. <laughs> <laughs> but there's another one in The Sopranos where uh, the, the character Lil Carmines, he, he's talking about a scene in a horror movie, and he says it juxtaposes the sacred and the propane. <laughs> uh, or there's a part where Tony t describes his mom as an albacore around my neck. Oh, instead of an albatross. Yeah, uh, very good. Uh, this is more of a phrase, but I instantly thought of um, the of the Big Lebowski when he, he he points out that Jackie Treehorn treats objects like women. Yeah, um, the Cohen the Cohen brothers paint with this sort of uh, brush a lot in their dialogue. Uh, I was reading a, a, a little bit about this. Basically, I was looking for some more examples of uh, of, of malapropisms in the Coen Brothers' uh, work, and I ran across this uh, Senses of Cinema post by Paul Coughlin from several years back, and he described the Coen Brothers' use of dialogue as, quote, the dialogue of wonderful inarticulacy. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. Now, you, you'll also uh, – another place you see a lot of, of, of malapropism is uh, that you'll see it sometimes used as part of racial stereotypes. Hmm. Uh, one example that comes to mind, and you see this listed on various um, like trope websites, is uh, the Fisher Stevens role in the Short Circuits movies. I've never seen Short Circuit. Well, it's probably all right. Uh, there's yeah. no reason to go back to these, but these were, of course, movies about a about a robot. Like they become self aware and it has like a laser cannon on its shoulder, and it's like a puppet. Does it like, do cute robot malapropisms? No, it doesn't. But Fisher Stevens plays um, uh, an Indian scientist, oh. and he uses this uh, you know this this uh, this accent, and he's, he just busts out a number of these, and uh, ultimately you know it's it's kind of like this idea, the comedic racial stereotype of someone who doesn't have a great grasp on the English language, and therefore stumbles into all of these. Uh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. 
but the use of malapropisms in fiction does go way, way back. Like Shakespeare used malapropisms a lot. Uh, the character of Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing famously delivers a bunch of these and they're great. So Dogberry is this incompetent knight constable and he's supposed to be, I think, a satire on the amateur police forces of Elizabethan times. And a lot of the humor comes through in him giving confused orders like um, – he, when he's trying to get one of his deputies to apprehend all vagrants, but instead he says, you are to comprehend all vagrant men. Um, and he, he tells them to be vigitant, I beseech you. <laughs> uh, and then there's a great part later where he claims that a bad dude will be condemned into everlasting redemption. <laughs> well, there's, a, a, there's fun to be had with, uh, with, with, uh, with malapropisms, right? Because you can sort of – you can have your character fumble into some, saying something a little more um, articulate than they mean to at times. Yes. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Like the idea of everlasting redemption is, yeah. is sort of a cool metaphor even though he just is screwing up words. <laughs> but after this character actually, uh, since sometime in the 19th century, malapropisms have also been known as dogberryisms. Huh. Uh, there was another one I came across that I'd never read before, but this is from the real world. So former Texas governor and U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry, he, he's famous for the for saying the oops when he couldn't remember something. Oh, yeah. But also um, th that's not what I was bringing up. Uh, on, on August 25th, 2014, there was an article in the Texas Tribune by John Reynolds that reported that Perry uh, had been speaking to a crowd and at this event – he told the crowd, quote, we need to look at the states, which are the lavatories of innovation and democracy. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what, what would that – if we were to take that literally, like what would that even mean? Uh, that, I think that's the other thing, the part of it too, is like even if they're not quite accidentally profound, we can't help but puzzle over it because uh -huh. it, it will inject a bizarre metaphor or mental image into our head and then we're just forced to wrestle with it. Right. And there are also just lots of these that people make in regular everyday speech. We probably do them all the time. Everybody yeah. does them. Uh, one of my favorites I ran across was the idea of all the people who died in the Blue Bonnet Plague. <laughs> Uh, see, I saw that in the notes, and I didn't even get it until you said it out loud. Uh huh. And that that points out an interesting thing, which is that there there are multiple different ways that people put together malapropisms. Uh, like I was reading a paper by the linguist Arnold M. Zwicky on classical malapropisms, and Zwicky points out that lots of malapropisms are just approximations that come out of our mouths due to the tip of the tongue effect. Uh, this is something we've talked about on stuff to blow your mind before. Uh, you can go back and find our episode on that if you Google it. I'm sure. But the short version is you are failing to call the correct word from memory and by accident you employ a similar sounding word instead. Uh, you can often hear this especially in people who may have been having a bit of alcohol to drink. Like often words that get swapped start with the same letters or sounds like you know, uh, th this database is a vast suppository of information. <laughs> I guess actually that wouldn't start with the same sound but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. But other times, malapropisms have more unique etiologies. For example, when somebody learns a word or phrase by mishearing it and then mm. never corrects their original misimpression. I know this has happened multiple times in my life. Blue bonnet plague would probably be a good example here. It suggests that somebody heard somebody talking about the bubonic plague but misheard how they pronounced it and then just never got corrected on that. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that. We all have examples of that in our, in our own life. 
Totally. Uh, but while malapropisms are themselves a, a normal part of speech, they go back into the mists of history. Everybody does them and everybody's been doing them for thousands of years probably. The name we use for them has a very distinct origin in history. And that origin lies with an Irish satirist, playwright, and politician named Richard Brinsley Sheridan who lived from 1751 to 1816. Sheridan wrote a number of successful comedies, but his 1775 play called The Rivals introduced the world to a character named Mrs. Malaprop, whom another character says is infamous for delivering words, quote, so ingeniously misapplied without being mispronounced. Uh, so, for example, Mrs. Malaprop uh, calls one other character the very pineapple of politeness. <laughs> and uh, at another point, she refers to an allegory lying on the banks of the Nile, which we should point out gets it wrong twice because the Nile has crocodiles, not alligators. Oh, I didn't even get that one at first. I yeah. Allegory and alligators. Okay. I think that joke works better on people who are less obsessed with crocodilians than you and I are. <laughs> Uh, so, so it seems that most usage of the term malapropism in English actually dates back to this character in a late 18th century Irish play, maybe all usage of it. But of course, the name Mrs. Malaprop is built out of existing words borrowed from other languages uh, like uh, there's, the, there's this expression malapropos meaning inappropriate originally from the French where it would mean something like out of place or amiss. But from the name of this character, we now get the label that we use specifically for malapropisms, words used wrong in this way. And so today we wanted to look at the phenomenon of invented words like the word malapropism. There are tons of words like this. You know, there, there are some words that enter the lexicon from works of fiction or mythology. There are words that enter through deliberate coinage where somebody is trying to create a term for a previously unnamed concept. There are words that enter through changes in technology and science and culture. And we wanted to, to talk about some of our favorite stories of these words and explore how they differ from other types of words? What, what does it take to invent a successful word? And are there any parallels uh, to the invention of a successful piece of technology? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic because it's, you know, the, the, the world of language, it is a world that is invented, like all words are essentially invented. Um, well, I don't know if I agree with you there because they all do come from human brains. But I would say maybe some words could be thought of more like features of the human body, mm -hmm. that maybe they just emerged from us at some point in history without us trying to find a word for something. That's true. The more the sort of primal roots of language, which we'll be discussing. Uh, but, but still, it's, it's, it's unlike most of the other topics we've done. I don't know if we've done a linguistic episode of invention yet, have we? I don't know. Yeah, we I mean, but there are obviously linguistic inventions. Yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. All right, so we like to start by asking what came before. Uh, and I guess in this case, we would have to ask, where do words usually come from when they're not being deliberately coined or invented by somebody? We know that most words are not deliberate inventions. Uh, obviously, the, the deep origins of language, that's a massive and complicated subject, uh, limited in large part to informed speculation since we don't have physical evidence to, to discover or to refer to. You know, spoken words don't leave fossils. Uh, and it's, it's too big to address at length today. 
But by studying linguistics within the timeline of history, especially with the help of written sources, we can learn a lot about how languages change over time and about where words come from. And one thing that I think is extremely interesting is that many scholars have noticed important parallels between the evolution of languages and the evolution of species in biology. Uh, there are important differences as well, but just to mention one of the similarities – like the living organisms on Earth, many of Earth's languages show signs of having a common ancestor. Uh, we can show signs of common ancestry in all living things on Earth by comparing similarities in the genes and observing how those genes change over time through evolution. Likewise, we can observe similarities in some words and formations that many languages separated over vast distances seem to share and observe how those uh, pronunciations and semantics change over time. And in fact, the, the kind of strange thing is that it was obvious that languages evolve over time from common ancestors before it was obvious that plants and animals do this uh, because, uh, you know, it was obvious because linguists could track these changes through written sources from history. They could see for themselves how words and usages and whole languages morphed over the centuries. Charles Darwin actually wrote in The Descent of Man, quote, The formation of different languages and of distinct species and the proofs that both have been developed through the gradual process are curiously parallel. I was reading a, a good article about this by John Whitfield in PLOS Biology from 2008 called Across the Curious Parallel of Language and Species Evolution. And uh, uh, so Whitfield's writing about this subject and uh, in addition to common ancestry and changes to words and genes over time, another parallel that Whitfield points out is that, quote, their most important components show the least variation. In biology, this means that genes such as those involved in the machinery of protein synthesis, so basically something every organism has to do all the time, change so slowly that they can be used to discern the relationships of groups that diverged hundreds of millions of years ago. Likewise, the most commonly used words such as numbers and pronouns change the most slowly. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, other words, uh, you can find other words that seem to persist in fairly stable forms over long periods of time and they very often are common words, you know, words like for family relationships, words for things like mother and father and right. uh, for, uh, you know, things that would be referred to very often in, in everyday speech. Where it's the, whereas it's the more specific terms that uh, may go extinct over time. Right, or, or face dramatic substitutions. Yeah. Uh, so today, more than half of the world's population speaks a language that shares as a common ancestor an extinct language called Indo-European. Uh, one fun example I was reading about uh, in a Nautilus article from last year by uh, Savinja Nurkiazova – uh, was about the word honey. So, of course, the word honey is honey in English. In Sanskrit, it's madhu. In Russian, it's miod. And to bring it back to English, we have mead, an alcoholic mm. drink made out of honey. In Sanskrit, Russian, and even in English, you've got these links that, you know, words are still basically very similar. Right, right. Another interesting fact from that article, uh, a, a professor of linguistics at New York University named Gregory Guy talks about the word lox, which in English, of course, means, you know, smoked salmon. You'd have your bagel with lox. 
But apparently lox is basically the same word as it was in Proto-Indo-European 8,000 years ago. Wow. Where it was probably pronounced lox and it meant salmon like 8,000 years ago. It's interesting too that both of these examples are foods. They're things that are uh, concepts that, that, that are for things that we, we not only conceive of but we actually take into our body. We have such a complete sensory understanding of them. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, point too. Things that would have been delicious from ancient times. But anyway, based on this uh, biological analogy, I want to use an analogy for the purpose of the rest of this episode, which is basically biological evolution versus genetic engineering. Most new words that enter a language do so through a process more akin to biological evolution. They somehow arise naturally among speakers rather than as, uh, you know, genetically engineered. You know, we we created a giant scorpion as a government weapon or something, <laughs> like, you know, the great B-movie plot mm-hmm. um, than these genetic engineering projects. And, and those would be more akin to what we're ultimately going to focus on, the attempts to create a new word on purpose. But let's focus on the the biological evolution version first. So when languages evolve naturally, what happens at the word-to-word level? Where do new words come from if nobody is trying to coin them on purpose? Well, of course, uh, on our show, we've we've discussed plenty of times if you're looking to invent something new – you can always just steal something that has already been invented. <laughs> and yeah, most inventions are just stealing ideas from other people mm-hmm. uh, and or maybe making a very slight modification. Uh, so a very common source of new words is borrowing from existing languages. Yeah, this, and these are also known as loan words. Uh, and uh, one one fun example of this, or at least I find it fun. I don't know your your mileage may vary, but um, <laughs> earworm is uh, that's is, not is fun an, at all. Ear, well, 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 I'm just kidding. That's that's great, <laughs> Robert. Uh, earworms uh, are an example of this. It, now it's technically a calic. That's uh, spelled C-A-L-Q-U-E, which is a specialized version of this in which the original word in another language is uh, – is, it's not just a matter of taking the uh, – say, the, the German word for something and using it. Mm-hmm. It's directly translating it literal, literally word for word. Uh, other examples of this would be brainwashing or Adam's apple. But with earworm, it stems from the German Ohrwurm, which may have originated with um, German operetta composer Paul Linke, but didn't enter the popular lexicon um, until like the early 2000s. Uh, prior to all of this, Ohrwurms were, were insects of the order uh, Dermaptera, earwigs. Oh. Uh, probably named because, uh, well, there's one theory is that they have the their hind wings are kind of ear-like if you fold them out. They kind of look like a human ear. Hmm. But the more likely explanation is that you have this old wives' tale about them crawling into human ears and laying eggs inside your brain. Fun. Which, of course, becomes part of the idea of like what is a song you hear and you can't get it out of your head. It is kind of like a small insect that has crawled in through your ear into your brain. It's like those things in Wrath of Khan. Yeah, exactly. But real earwigs don't do this, right? No, no. There's no uh, – I think they will uh, – From based on the, the research I was looking at, I think they will occasionally – you can get one in your ear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would refer back to our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode, which I think will be rerunning soon mm-hmm. about insects crawling inside of body cavities. It happens. It can happen. But not, not to uh, the degree that wives' tales would have you believe. And not eggs in the brain. Right. No. No eggs in the brain. 
We need another phrase, by the way. That's a that's a unfortunate phrase because who knows? Are wives really saying this? Uh, yeah, it is. It is sexist terminology. Uh, we'll just say old folk beliefs uh, uh-huh. and hearsay. Old starship captains' tales. Yes. Um, so uh, English itself is actually composed of a huge number of words borrowed from other languages, and it's not just interesting terms like earworm, right? Tons of everyday terminology is descended from words that were borrowed into English hundreds of years ago. English originally was a West Germanic language and and these roots are where we get a lot of the origins of common basic short words that still exist in English today. But tons of other words in English come from other languages. So here's one that I was just thinking about. What do you call uh, the album Black Sabbath by the band Black Sabbath on which the song Black Sabbath appears? Sounds like a trick question. I think the answer is Black Sabbath. <laughs> it's the eponymous album, right? Oh, the yes, of course. Yeah, eponymous. But of course, eponymous, that's a, that's a word taken directly from words in Greek. So that's like a Greek loan word into English. It means to, to give one's name to. Um, and in a way, it's funny to try to list words in English borrowed from other languages because it would make more sense really to try to list the words not borrowed from other languages uh, descending directly from Germanic roots because the vast majority of English words at this point are borrowed. By some estimates, borrowed words make up about 80 percent or more of the language. And some of these words have been borrowed for a very long time. Many came from languages like French and Latin hundreds of years ago. A big point of linguistic cross-pollination here is the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century where Norman French suddenly became the language of government and the ruling class in England. And so this legacy still exists in English today where you have tons of words having multiple synonyms for the same concept uh, and you have a kind of like everyday version of the word that comes from Old English and then a more formal or official sounding version of the word that comes from the French. Mm, so, so like a, a holdover from a time when both languages had to exist together at the same time in the same heads uh, and uh, off the same lips. Yeah, and, and the French derivative ones were generally the ones in power, the ones with money and the ones with administrative authority. So uh, you get like buy and purchase buy from the old English, purchase from the old French, or you've got dead versus deceased, dead from the old English, deceased from the old French, or you've got wild from the old English versus savage from the old French. Mm. But that's a wonderful point about the idea that that 80 percent or more of the language is just words that come from other languages. It kind of creates this stone soup sort of scenario for English itself. Like what what is there that is not uh, something that was brought in to uh, bulk up the recipe? Yeah, uh, that's a great metaphor. But then ultimately, I mean, it gets complicated because both Old English and Old French are Indo-European languages. Yeah. Meaning that so while you know modern English has all these words that come from the French lineage of language development, ultimately both languages are thought to come from this hypothetical language a long time ago, Indo-European. So they split off, they formed different lineages, they formed different words that descended from each other, and then at some point in history, they crossed and then entered each other. It's kind of like a scenario where if you have like two films that come out, and they're both essentially retellings of the Odyssey or the retellings of Beowulf or what have you, like that's, the, that's in the genes of the thing, mm-hmm. and then, but then one sort of steals from the other. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. 
so another common uh, source of words ending up in a language is words derived from proper nouns, something that was once the proper name of a person or a place gets drafted into a common word or phrase. An example here would be platonic. Think mm-hmm. of a platonic relationship. Now, once this was understood to refer directly to ideas discussed by Plato. You're talking about the philosopher Plato. Now, platonic does not really necessarily call Plato to mind. It's just an adjective, right? It just means like, you know, a non-sexual relationship, a platonic one. Another example would be bohemian. Bohemia is a place. It's in the modern Czech Republic. But now the word bohemian doesn't suggest to people anything about that place. Though, of course, we still have examples of – uh, of words that uh, they still have a direct tie uh, to uh, their source, like say Machiavellian. Oh yeah. Uh, when, if someone uses Machiavellian, I don't know. I tend not to find examples of people misusing it or mu- using it in a general sense, at least yet. But you could well imagine a future or you know or a usage of Machiavellian that really uh, is completely cut off from the original concepts. There's a good malapropism of Machiavelli oh, really? in The Sopranos okay. where. Yeah. Uh, where somebody is like, that's what Prince Machiavelli said. <laughs> but I think he wasn't a prince. He, it was the prince by Machiavelli. Ah, uh, yes. Actually just thought of another good proper name to common usage. Okay. Denim. Denim. Den- Denim originally is like from uh, – is denim. It's like from a place. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Well, oh, well, as long as we're talking about, about products, I mean there's, of course, champagne – is another example, right? That's a great one, Where yeah. it's it, officially, it's supposed to be tied to the Champagne region, mm-hmm. but it is often just used generically. Yeah, now it's just a common noun. It means bubbly wine. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but so another thing that uh, a great source of new words in the sort of uh, natural evolution version is back formation. I love this. Back formation is when a new word is born when a prefix or suffix is removed from an existing word in order to create a new one, often because people just assume that these new words already exist because of linguistic cues. So people create a new word thinking it's already a word, not realizing that that it's not one. So here's one that I really like. The verb lace, as in to use a laser. Oh, okay. So this is thinking like, all right, you have the Terminator. What's the Terminator do? He terminates. Right. What's the laser do? Lases the heck out of stuff. Exactly. You've got a fire poker. What do you do with a poker? You poke. So you've got a laser. The surgeon has a laser. What do they do with it? They lace the patient's eye. And this is a word now. People use the verb lace all the time. Uh, But it is a back formation. The word laser is not like the word poker. Laser is actually an acronym standing for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. But because of its similarity to these other nouns with a similar spelling that end with ER, like poker, it got backformed into a verb. Huh. And of course, this example also shows another new way that words are formed, acronyms, right? Laser was originally an acronym. Now it's not. You know, laser is just a word. People don't capitalize it. They don't put periods between the letters. It's just a laser. I was reading about another fun back formation. This is the kind of back formation known as a false singular. And the example here is the English word pea. Really? As in pea soup. So originally, the Middle English word was peas, P-E-A-S-E. And this would be the noun that worked as a singular or a collective, like the word corn or like the word wheat. So you could have a bowl of peace or you could have a single peace kernel, 
Well, because plural words in modern English end in S sounds, people began to assume sometime in the 17th century that P's must be the plural word for the singular P, huh. and then the word P was thus created. This type of origin, again, this is the false singular. A similar thing would happen if people started assuming that the singular of moose must be moo. <laughs> As opposed to Mises <laughs> or, of course, Moose. Another one that I really like. Uh, how about truncation, also known as shortening or clipping? This is when new words are created by cutting chunks out of existing words. So mayonnaise becomes mayo. Examination becomes exam. Refrigerator becomes fridge. Robot becomes bot. Application becomes app. Advertisement becomes ad. Yeah, we also see stuff like you know, bicycle and bike, rhinoceros and rhino, or uh, uh, brother becomes bro or bra. Uh -huh. uh, one of my favorites, uh, that also the one that I think is I find just so humorous, is um, when pizza becomes za. Mm -hmm. I don't know if actual humans use this or if it's just like Ninja Turtles, but um, <laughs> I like to bust it out for groans uh, now and again. Never pay for lay pizza, man. <laughs> uh, here's another one, blending existing words. Pretty straightforward. You take incomplete parts of words and smash them together. Breakfast and lunch becomes brunch. Spoon and fork becomes spork. A podcast itself. We are on a podcast that is a portmanteau of iPod and broadcast. And some would classify <laughs> this particular podcast as infotainment. Oh, no. Which is, of course, a combination of information and entertainment. Uh, uh, so you, you get that a lot is, of fun that results. is a portmanteau from hell. Yeah, uh, you see a lot of this in you know a, a place where you see a lot of language generation is the business world, mm -hmm. uh, where you know you have a new product or a new approach. It needs a new title. It needs a new con you know, a new word for this concept. And a great way to create it is to just crash two things together and see how they fit. Are you not infotained? <laughs> okay, one more natural source of new words: onomatopoeia. This is what we call it when a word is formed by sounding like the thing it's referring to. So plink, honk, mm -hmm. hiss, the word imitates the sound of the concept. I was trying to think, do we form new onomatopoeias? This, it seems like all the ones I can think of have been around for a while. Maybe we form them less often than some other types of words, but I'm sure we must form new ones every now and then. I was trying to think of a good modern example, and the one I thought of was, I'll ping you about that later. So originally an onomatopoeia from the 19th century, this would you know refer to the sound of a bullet hitting metal or something, a ping. Uh, but because of conceptual or auditory similarities, it came to refer to things in the communication sphere, such as like uh, sonar communications between submarines or between network computers oh, yeah. or – yeah. Um, and I would be surprised if the modern resurgence of ping in the business world or in the workplace didn't have something to do with the ping-like like notification sounds in email and chat apps. Huh. Yeah, I was trying to think of some more, like some recent ones, and I was looking around at, uh, at some examples of, uh, of sort of modern lingo. And perhaps yeet is an example. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. Wait, what, is that, what does that imitate the sound of? Uh, well, okay, well, let me define it for anyone. So okay. yeet, uh, as the, the kids will use this term these days, according to, uh, to my sources on the internet, uh, it seems to be either a strong version of yes or to, quote, throw something forcefully in a specified direction. As in, I yeeted a cup of noodles across the room. 
Yeah. Uh, but I, well, like I've, yeet, like I can sort of, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% positive that there's <laughs> any um, uh, in, anything to it. Like to throw something doesn't necessarily create the sound of yeet, but then when you start like trying to figure out how the sounds work in your head, you know, I can sort of half formulate a case for a yeet being an actual sound. God, we sound so cool right now. <laughs> I'll have to keep thinking about that one. Think about it the next time you throw something across the room. Okay. All right. On that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we will dive into some examples of intentionally invented words. All right. We're back. Okay. Now, we've been looking at ways that words arise in language without being intentionally invented, when they arise through the process that's more akin to biological evolution. But what about when we want to Frankenstein some words, just like make them in the lab? Um, so, so, Sort of going back to the business scenario. You've yes. got a new product that you need to get out there or you're rebranding another one and you, you got to call it something. Mm-hmm. Well, I know somebody who would have been great at branding and that's the English writer Horace Walpole who lived from 1717 to 1797. Uh, and the the term that he coined that everybody knows, he, he actually coined quite a few, but most of them are forgotten. The one that everybody knows is serendipity. Ah. And this comes from a letter that Walpole was writing to a friend uh, named Horace Mann, different from the American education reformer, I'm pretty sure. I think this Horace Mann was a British diplomat. Uh, but the letter was dated January 28, 1754, and despite the magical delight of serendipity as a concept, I have to say the occasion by which he ends up describing it is incredibly dull. <laughs> uh, basically, Walpole says that he accidentally discovered a historical link between two families while he was studying their coats of arms in a reference book. Earth-shaking, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's writing about this process and he says, quote, this discovery, indeed, is almost of that kind which I call serendipity, a very expressive word, which, as I have nothing better to tell you, I shall endeavor to explain to you. You will understand it better by the derivation than the definition. I once read a silly fairy tale called The Three Princes of Serendip. As their highnesses traveled, they were always making discoveries by accidents and sagacity of things which they were not in quest of. For instance, one of them discovered that a mule blind of the right eye had traveled the same road lately because the grass was eaten only on the left side where it was worse than on the right. Now do you understand serendipity? One of the most remarkable instances of this accidental sagacity, for you must observe that no discovery of a thing you are looking for comes under this description, was of my Lord Shaftesbury, who, happening to dine at Lord Chancellor Clarendon's, found out the marriage of the Duke of York and Mrs. Hyde by the respect with which her mother treated her at table. God, riveting, right? Dinner, yeah. how he treated her. At uh, oh, man. <laughs> it's it, it's hard to believe the, the term really took off at all yeah. uh, reading this. But it's a great term, right? Yeah. Because it, it really does describe something, the idea of a happy accident, the, the occurrence or development uh, of events by a thing that was, you know, in a way that's beneficial but that was not intended by the agent. Yeah, like when you run into an old friend at a subway, on a subway ride, and you, th and you think, this is exactly like a one-eyed donkey eating grass <laughs> on one side of the road. I think uh, something, at least in the way I use the word, it, it's especially serendipitous if it's 
um, a situation in which, you know, in the course of trying to do one thing, especially if that thing is foolish or misguided, mm-hmm. you actually accomplish something different and good. Oh, true. Yes. It's like the foolishness of the original errand that makes something especially serendipitous. Mm. But uh, according to a post that excerpted from this letter in the Paris Review, the adjective form of the word serendipitous was not recorded until 1943. So that's a pretty big (laughs) span of time. And I wonder, do intentionally invented words take longer on average to find all of their derived parts of speech? I don't know. I mean, it seems like they have to have a certain amount of sticking power to just like uh, language is a living thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if you create a word and it doesn't take off, you know, if, if someone's out there not making it happen, like pushing it into the into the lexicon, uh-huh. like, how does it ever gain a foothold? Well, I think about the fact that when a word feels organic, you're more likely to assume that it's derived different parts of speech already exist, Mm -hmm. right? That you're not making them up when you say them. Right. Whereas when a word is something that you're aware of as like an intentional recent coinage, you might be more likely to think, oh, serendipitous, that's not a word. This is also probably the struggling point for za, right? That's (laughs) why I think that I could be wrong, but I don't think a lot of people are using za as an abbreviation for pizza. Uh, just because it's it's it sounds fake, it doesn't seem helpful. Okay, uh, so Walpole also provides early written evidence for some other terms, though not necessarily always of his intentional coinage. One I was reading about that I thought was great is uh, from an article in the New Republic by David Crystal that's all about terms for drunkenness in English. A lot of these are forgotten. Okay. Uh, And this term comes from Walpole. The term is muckibus, meaning drunkenly sentimental, which is a good thing to have a word for, right? Like, you know, I love you, man. No, I love you, man. Muckibus. Uh, Sounds a little bit like succubus too. So it has this kind of like demonic uh, quality to it as well of the the will being overpowered. Would you believe that this word comes from a dinner party? (laughs) (laughs) So it's an anecdote that Walpole shares in a letter to George Montague on April 20th, 1756. Uh, Walpole says – so he's at a dinner party. He's having supper. He overhears somebody named Lady Coventry saying that if she drank any more, she would become muckibus. And then somebody named Lady Mary Coke asks what that means and Coventry says that it was Irish for sentimental. Uh, (laughs) Crystal writes, quote, The mock Latin ending is known from other facetious 18th century slang formations such as stinky bus. (laughs) Uh, But there is no obvious connection with muck. Lady Coventry came from Ireland. The likelihood is that Walpole misheard a genuine Irish word. Perhaps – and here I'm going to do my best with an Irish word here – muiniac. Uh, which is spelled M-A-O-I-T-H-N-E-A-C-H. Ireland, get it together. Come on. <laughs> That's Okay. I think it's muiniac uh, and it means sentimental. Yeah, I should say Crystal's article also mentions a bunch of other terms for drunkenness, including my new favorite, uh, not a loan word, not a new coinage, a classic Anglo-Saxon word, which is symbelgol, meaning oh, wow. wanton with drink feasting. This one also sounds demonic in nature, which is, is perhaps fitting. I went to the Black Sabbath and I became symbelgol. <laughs> 
Thinking about serendipity though actually got me uh, on the subject of another invented word that I really like that comes from the American philosopher Daniel Dennett and it's his concept of a deepity. I think we've talked about this on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Uh, but I read about this idea in Dennett's book called Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. Oh, yeah. I remember us discussing that. So a deepity is a special kind of equivocation. And of course, equivocation is uh, a word or phrase that's used in two different ways to a misleading effect. So you might say like, um, why would you read all the arguments for and against Dennett's theory of consciousness? Isn't there enough arguing in the world? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, people, people say stuff like this all the time. Yeah. You know, it hinges on two different meanings of the word argument in one sense – an argument is just explaining why you think something's true. In another sense, it means like angry or acrimonious. Okay. So, so that's an equivocation generally. A deepity is a specific kind of equivocation uh, that you'll probably recognize immediately from your life. It's a statement that can either be interpreted as true and utterly trivial or profound and obviously false. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, but it but it takes advantage of like the good halves of both of these versions. So an example would be if somebody says, "Love is just a word." <laughs> so either you're talking about the word "love," in which case this statement is true, but it is a banal truism and doesn't. Okay, so what? Yes, the yeah. word "love" is a word, or you're saying that the feeling of love is itself nothing more than a word, in which case. The statement is stupid and nobody would bother paying any attention to you. <laughs> there was a – I want to say Umberto Eco wrote something about um, – or I can't remember if he wrote it or quoted it uh, – about some, uh, some, some treatment on the, on the rose mm -hmm. uh, saying like the first person to make this statement was quite possibly a genius and the second person to make it was an idiot. Um, <laughs> Oh, was he talking about nominalism though with William of Ockham and the name of the rose? Uh, likely so. But yeah, it was, it was from – I want to say it was from the introduction or the, uh, uh, or the afterword to the name of the rose. But it's, mm -hmm. it's been a while since I've read that. Well, I mean I guess another thing that's true is like with any statement, even an obviously stupid one, with enough effort, you can find something that, that might be true about it. Right. A or, way of interpreting it. That, right. Yeah. Or if the, the actor uh, reciting the line – is uh, skilled enough, it right. can seem a lot more profound than it is. And you can be like, oh, man, yeah, love is just a word. I just heard Benedict Cumberbatch say it, and I'm feeling <laughs> it hardcore. Right. It's totally different. Brian than, Cox could say it, and then yeah. I'd be like, oh, he's right. But if it's the actor who plays Badger on um, uh, Breaking Bad, a different story entirely. Right. And in fact, love is just a word is a great example because you can make tons of deepities with the X is just a Y formulation. Mm -hmm. Lots of them are like this. One example that we thankfully hear a lot less of than we used to, like 10 years ago, this was everywhere you looked, evolution is just a theory. Remember this yeah. one? So it hinges on two different understandings of the word theory. One interpretation of the sentence is true but trivial. Another interpretation of the sentence where theory means something like unfounded speculation would upend all of modern biology if it were true but is patently false. Yeah, yeah. It, it does, it, that statement does tend to hinge on a misunderstanding of what theories are and what role they play in our understanding of the world. Other things are not quite as obvious as a deepity, but feel vaguely deepity-ish. One that I was, uh, one that I came across is beauty is only skin deep. Like in one sense, this could be saying physical beauty is only physical, which is true but not very profound. 
or it could be saying beauty has nothing to do with transcendent qualities like morality or character, in which case, is that true? Like, don't we often find things beautiful because they're morally good or thoughtful or meaningful? Yeah, depending on how you interpret it, 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 it could mean one or of, of two just dramatically different ideas. And the sense in which it is obviously true doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. I notice in the real world, deepities often shoot by you real fast. They tend to be the kind of thing that somebody doesn't just say and leave hanging, but they say and then move on from. You know, they're talking very quickly. Like they can sound good for half a second if you don't stop to think about them. But I was also thinking about deepity is interesting because there's something about the way the word sounds that was clearly part of the selection process for attaching this word to this concept. Like uh, originally Dennett says that the word was coined by a daughter of a friend of his. Uh, her name is Miriam Weizenbaum. And originally she had been at the dinner table sort of like uh, lightly mocking her father for some kind of – kind of overly ponderous thing he said. Uh, and then Dennett heard this word uh, from her and then reimagined it because of the the sound of the word fits so well with the concept that he wanted a word for. Uh, and it brings to mind the concept of idiophones, which we explored on an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Basically, the idea that uh, certain um, syllables and word sounds in our in our minds are naturally widely associated with with concepts such as physical textures. Like there are words that naturally sound slimy to us, mm. or have certain kind of moral connotations to us uh, that are just like sounds, totally apart from semantic meaning. Right. Yeah. You often see this in the like the names of fictitious characters. Mm. Um, part of this is is. We've been on a, a, a Harry Potter kick at the house, yeah. and so like a lot of the the names that J.K. Rowling uses, you know, the, the, I feel, feel like they they line up with this rather well, you know, like uh, um, uh, Severus Snape, you know, mm-hmm. that's this it just it, it drips, it it. It, it feels and sounds like the the, the individual it is. You it know? hisses like a Slytherin. Yeah. yeah, Slytherin itself, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, it, there is something going on here. I think, like, if you're not building a neologism entirely out of root words that have semantic meanings, I mean, it's a different thing to go with like malapropism, where mm-hmm. that's built out of root words from another language that have some kind of meaning already. You wouldn't be able to tell what deepity means just by looking at the word, right? Right. It doesn't, it doesn't have a semantic suggestion unless you've heard it explained to you or heard it used. So to what extent does possible idiophonic residue guide the choice of words being linked to concepts like that? I mean, I'm thinking about it in my head, itty, deepity, the itty part of it somehow sounds like the concept to me. What well, brings to mind – Itty bitty. It brings in mind smallness, so it's like a small, small depth. Uh-huh. But it like that's kind of a stretch. It's not. There's not. You can't really get there by analyzing uh, actual grammar, right? Right. Because itty bitty I, is is itty bitty even in Webster's. I don't know. It's <laughs> it's very much slang. Uh, itsy bitsy. I'm not even sure where that comes from. Itty bitty. I don't know. I, yeah. Deep itty. <laughs> Uh, just in terms of in examples of uh, of invented terminology, uh, this is one I was thinking about recently. Psychonaut. 
Oh, that's um, great. Because when you when you hear it, I mean, it's composed out of the out of the Greek, so you it's easy to assume that this has been with us a very long time. Mm-hmm. But well, uh, it is more like malapropism in that it's built out of roots that do have meanings that you could identify. Yes, yeah, because like clearly it's drawing from the popular use of say astronaut, which means star sailor or cosmonaut, universe sailor, and of course you have the the Argonauts of Greek myth who were simply sailors in the vessel Argo. Mm-hmm. Um, but psychonaut, uh, when I was looking into it, I was thinking, oh, okay, this term must have been around during the 60s. Uh, and it apparently wasn't. The term is widely used now, but it didn't seem to emerge until um, German author Ernst Jünger used it in, 19, uh, in uh, 1970. And it was subsequently picked up by various occultists and ethnobotanists. And uh, now it's become you know, just sort of a standard and really quite useful term for describing various 20th or 21st century individuals like, say, John C. Lilly or Terence McKenna. People who were explorers in the realm of the mind. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But also, yeah, but also drawing in that sort of astronaut motif of one, of one who goes out by going in. And then, Joe, I know you want to discuss uh, the Thagomizer. Oh, right. This comes from – this is one of our favorites. Yes. We, we, it's come up on Stuff to Blow Your Mind a lot. Uh, so the Thagomizer is something that was coined as a joke in a Gary Larson cartoon. It refers to the arrangement of spikes on the tail of a stegosaurus. Uh, and it, uh, th- so there's a Gary Larson Far Side cartoon where a caveman is apparently teaching a class and is pointing <laughs> to a picture like a slide projector, a slide of uh, one of these things and says, now this end is called the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons, which is <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. So, so this was eventually picked up by actual paleontologists who found this hilarious because prior to this, you didn't really have a name for the spiked tail. It was just the spiked tail of a stegosaurus or some other type of stegosaur. Mm-hmm. And when you when you try to start breaking down how thagomizer would even work as a word, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Because okay, we have thag. Thag is the name of the caveman victim of the dinosaur. Right. You got your proper noun there. Right. And but then we come to. Omizer, O-M-I-Z-E-R. <laughs> and this is just nonsense because, yes, you do have some English words that end with omizer, but they're words like randomizer, economizer, customizer, atomizer. And these all uh, are root words that themselves end in om, like atom. And then we get atomizer. So where does the om come from in thagomizer? Uh-huh. The Iser part makes more sense because I guess it's kind of like with tenderizer. That brings mm. us to eyes. So if you'll allow us to further uh, uh, etymologize here. Okay. <laughs> uh, it is just an old suffix, uh, like a long-established suffix that, uh, that, turns, uh, that allows us to make a noun or adjective into a verb. And then this can in turn be made into a noun. Hmm. So I just uh, etymologized. I am the etymologizer, which is not a real word, but could be. Okay. We could extrapolate into it, and you could follow the trails back to real words. <laughs> Thagomizer, if we are stretching, would at best mean a thing that turns one into Thag Simmons, <laughs> which makes no sense. And yet, at the same time, the joke still works. Like, it, I mean, clearly it worked. It was picked up. It becomes yeah. an unofficial name for this part of the dinosaur. I think official now. Is it official? Oh, yeah. Oh, well. I mean, I think it's used in scientific publications. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, that sounds good enough to me. So, clearly, it, it works when we hear it, even though it doesn't – when you dissect it linguistically, it's just not nonsense. 
but but we buy into it. I guess you know Thag was perhaps atomized or tenderized by the spiked tail, and uh, you know that is weirdly uh, relayed in the term thagomizer, even though it's just kind of a distorted echo of actual language. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have to call it here for today. We're we're running out of studio time, even. Though oh yeah, we, uh, but yeah, we um we will be back with part two of our uh, series on invented words. Here, I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. This this is a, this is a fun one, and I like where this journey is going because eventually we can even get into the realm of invented language. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, find us wherever you find podcasts. Wherever that happens to be, we're there. We're somewhere in there. Uh, if you go to inventionpod.com, that'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for the show, but you will find us all over the place. Wherever you get the show, just make sure you subscribe, you rate, and you review. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 